Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly Austin of Rock Book Show, and we are excited to announce that we are coming back as a podcast. You may have seen our previous episodes over on YouTube where we have over a half a million hits. Can you believe that? But we're excited to do this new format, and we will be bringing you the best Rock Book Show interviews that we possibly can. For now, here is a classic episode, one of our favorites, with Mike Scott of The Waterboys. Enjoy, and we will see you soon. Welcome to Rock Book Show. I'm Kimberly Austin, and joining me here on the beautiful but a little bit steamy High Line in New York City today is Mike Scott from the Water Boys. Mike, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Kimberly. Well, your book, I have to say, is one of my favorites. It's so beautifully written. Oh, that's that's very nice of you to say so. Being a poet and being a songwriter, did you find this easy to come up with a book? Well, I've always liked writing prose. I used to write essays at school, and then when the the internet era came along, I, I started writing blogs and tour diaries, and I found I really like the, the written word. Mm-hmm. And writing a book was something that I'd always had in the back of my mind, and finally the time came to do it. And, and yeah, I, I really love, I love playing with words, in, whether it's in a song or a limerick or, or whatever, whatever format. I just love words and what they can communicate. And you do turn them so beautifully. I was wondering, you talk about um, hearing the music in your head. Do you hear the lyrics at the same time? No, I've got instrumental music in my head all the time, including right now. I have a sort of blues groove going on right now. It's in, it's in my feet as well. You can't see, but my feet are tapping. But no, not the lyrics. I have to work very hard on the lyrics. That's a different thing. And you included, um, thankfully, a chapter about writing Hole of the Moon, one of my favorite songs. And I, I can't imagine walking down the streets of New York and having, I saw the crescent, you saw the Hole of the Moon just pop into my head. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it was... A long time ago, it was 1985, and I had a Canadian girlfriend called Krista. And we were walking down Lexington Avenue, I remember, because we were staying at the Gramercy Park Hotel. And as we crossed the road, she said to me, is it easy to write songs? And because she was my new girlfriend, I wanted to impress her. And, and so instead of giving the honest answer, which is, well, it's always different, it was kind of boring. The honest answer is boring. I said, oh, yes, it's dead easy. I'll write a song now. So I looked around for inspiration and there was a moon in the sky and this phrase, I saw the crescent, you saw the whole of the moon. In fact, I think first it was just the whole of the moon and then I saw the crescent, you saw, came into my mind and I, I wrote it down in an envelope. I saw the crescent. her and she was very impressed and and so we went back to the hotel and I, I wrote maybe a, a verse of it or something and yeah just popped in that's amazing and that chapter is so stunning because we really get to be a fly on the wall as you tinker with the lyrics and look for words that have more power I wanted to transmit something of, of what it feels like to write a song mm-hmm. and what that process feels like to be in it you know when I was a kid I, I wanted to be a musician so badly and it was because I wanted to know what, what was it like to write I Am The Walrus? What was it like to inhabit Eleanor Rigby while it was landing? I'd, money and fame and crowds and adulation, that's all very nice, but for me that's secondary. What I really want is to be in song when it's landing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and I've been lucky that I've been able to make my life doing just that. 
and I really wanted to to tell the reader what it feels like. I've tried hard. Yeah, no, you did a beautiful job, and there's a part of your book on page 292, I do believe, if I, can, if I may open to it ever so so gently, that you'd, you, to quote you, I'd always wanted to be the kind of artist who could draw on every strand of his music and personality at will. Do you feel you've come full circle now? You are that full, fully realized musician? Oh yeah, I am. I can think myself back into all my earlier selves. They, are, they exist in me like different wavelengths. If I want to tune into 1985 Mike, who was really intense and on fire, I can do it. If I want to tune into Celtic Mike from the late 80s or spiritual Mike from the 90s, I, I know how to do it. I love that when you did talk about that in the book, um, especially struck me when you talked about visit, revisiting young Mike. Yeah. Well, young Mike, you know, he was he, he was worried about things and, and his life was a lot more complicated than, than mine is. But I, I enjoy his company. I still go back and hang out with him now and then. I think that's a great thing to do, no matter who you are, to go back and revisit yourself. Absolutely. I, I think the hallmark of really healthy people, mentally healthy people, is that their, their kid is still intact. And I love that. I love meeting people whose kid is intact when you see it in their faces, like yours. A couple of things that struck me in the book as well is you're a guy who really made decisions with his gut instincts. Do you feel that was a hindrance or that was a helpful thing? Where does that stand with you? Well, really, I think it was a helpful thing. Because if I don't follow my gut instincts, what am I going to follow? Am I going to do what other people think I should do? Or going to do what my head tells me? I'd rather follow my heart and my guts. And while it's led me into some strange places or, or what the conventional wisdom would consider strange, I think I've, I've led a pretty happy and productive life and I'm happy with who I am so I have no complaints. One of those decisions that you had to make at one point was between Clive Davis and David Geffen, two very different personalities. Tell us about those meetings. Well I actually had, had more options than those two in fact. It was in the early 90s and my record deal had finished and uh, and the Water Boys were hot and, and I had every record company under the sun queuing up to meet me and talk to me. And Clive Davis and David Geffen were two of the most impressive guys that I met. And I liked them both, actually. I liked them both very much. Uh, in the end, I went with Geffen. Not so much because of him, although partly, because I did dig him. But it was more his, his A&R man. There was a guy called Tom Zutout at the time. Uh, I, I liked Tom, and I felt uh, Tom would give me good input. I visited, visited Geffen Records on Sunset Boulevard, and I just was impressed by the whole operation. Yeah. And so you had didn't help me very much because <laughs> it wasn't a very successful uh, alliance but it was yeah well sometimes those things happen and last year you released an album with uh, the poetry of Yeats well it's called an appointment with Mr. Yeats Yeats being W.B. Yeats who's Ireland's national poet I first set into music 24 years ago on the Waterboys Fisherman's Blues album and he has a famous poem called The Stolen Child it's a fairy poem set in the west of Ireland and I put it to music and, and it was a great success. And I always had the idea that I would follow it by doing a whole album or maybe actually a whole stage show of Yeats. And so it took me about 20 years, but I did it. Premiered it in Ireland at the Abbey Theatre in 2010, which was Yeats's theatre that, that he founded. And the show was a big hit and followed it with the album. The album comes out in the States in March. And we're actually playing a show at the Town Hall in New York City presenting an appointment with Mr. Yates on March the 20th next year. Oh, fantastic. And what is it about this city that's so magical? Well, I've always loved New York. I loved New York music before I even came here. 
I, New York has influenced the music of the world, contemporary music, in, in every way, from doo-wop right through to hip-hop. And, and I've always loved this city, and I actually have an apartment here. I just came from my apartment just now. Where's the first place you have to go once you land here? I go to uh, Lifetime, which is the health food shop on 6th <laughs> Avenue. Then I'll go down to Bleecker Bob's record store and see what's shaking down there. And I might go across to the Rockwood Music Hall, where a lot of my friends play. Yeah. There's a chapter, or I should say an appendix in the book, about the outro of Strawberry Fields, because you talk about in the beginning, you have a, a vision of what, that, what was happening with that music. Perhaps I'll let you explain that first. Well, when I was a kid, I, and even now, I have a very visual imagination when I listen to music. It, it makes pictures in my mind. And I remember as a kid listening to that outro of Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles and you know the last 30 seconds with their backward tapes and weird sounds and a Ringo doing this odd percussive groove and I, I saw in my mind the Beatles running around in between cars and elephants in an Asian traffic jam and when I spoke to my friends about this I was amazed to find that they either saw completely different pictures in their heads or nothing at all. Because naively, when I was six or seven years old, I thought that everybody saw the same pictures in their head when they listened to the same piece of music. And it was a great shock to discover that this was an error. And in fact, there were as many different visual interpretations of music as minds that listened. And, and as an experiment, I, I wrote to a lot of friends of mine and, and said, what do you, when, while I was writing the book, and said, well, what do you see when you listen to Strawberry Fields? I wrote to uh, Roseanne Cash, uh, various novelists, lots of musicians, poets, and they all gave me these wonderful, weird and wonderful impressions of Strawberry Fields. And I've, I've listed them all in the back of the book as an appendix. Yes, I, what do you think? Would you, could you make it a whole book? I would love to see that. A whole book of Strawberry Fields visions. Yes, or perhaps even a couple of other songs that you'd love to hear. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to do, yeah. You should do it. <laughs> yeah, what do people see when they hear Space Oddity by David Bowie, yeah. Or White Rabbit, yeah. <laughs> but you see, it has to be songs before the video era. Because once the video era kicks in, all we remember, unfortunately, are the videos. When I listen to Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie, it's such a great song. But all I see is that video, and that's one of the good ones. But that's all I see. I don't have my own internal response. Um, I often ask people this who are musicians. Um, when you go into a guitar shop to pick up a new instrument, what's the one riff you play? <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> um, I, I'm not a riffy player. I'm not a lead guitarist. I'm a rhythm guitarist. So probably I would go for the 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 uh, earthy key of A minor and I would strum an A minor with some little decorations on my pinky finger and maybe down to an E minor I'd probably play my own song bring them all in and check it out that way yeah. Very cool. Mike Scott, it's been a pleasure. This is Mike's book, Adventures of a Water Boy. I can't thank you enough for being here. My pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you. Mm -hmm.